0: Welcome to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. Each week, we hear real-time stories from athletes and CEOs on how to maximize performance through an endurance mindset. Let's get started. Well, welcome to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. I am your host, Greg McDonough. Today's guest started racing triathlons in the late 1970s and did his first Ironman triathlon in 1980. He's in the Ironman Hall of Fame and the U.S. Triathlon Hall of Fame. He hosts Breakfast with Bob podcast and the Babbittville Radio, co-founder of the Challenge Athletes Foundation, CEO of Babbitt Media Group. Please welcome Bob Babbitt. Bob, it's great to have you on the show.
1: Thanks, Greg. Pleasure to be with you.
0: Fantastic. So we focus on the endurance mindset on our show. And my favorite question to ask my guest is, Bob, tell me about how your endurance mindset has changed your life unexpectedly.
1: Well, you know, I think the endurance mindset comes from at first wondering, you know, where you're going in this world. And I remember where it first hit me when I finished that Ironman in 1980, I realized I, I learned something about me that I hadn't known before, because I didn't think I could do this. It was 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, 26.2 mile run. This is 1980. In 78, 15 people started it, 12 finished. In 79, 15, and 12. 1980, because of an article in Sports Illustrated, all of a sudden it was 108 of us. But it was an adventure. We didn't know what we were doing. I thought that you swam 2.4, rode 56, camped out, and rode back the next day and did the marathon. So I had 10 years sleeping bag and tent on the bike and had no clue that you're supposed to do the whole thing in one day. And throughout that day, you know, I had a bike that was $75 from a police auction. The whole back end was charred in a fire. We, I got a, a root beer snow cone at mile 90 of the bike ride. My your, your old crew back then, there was no aid stations, a Big Mac fries and a Coke at mile 25. Finished the bike ride, got a full-on 45-minute body massage from the crew. We, we didn't know what we were doing. But then as I was coming down Diamond Head at the end of this event with my crew behind me, and the little Fiat convertible with their lights on me, and I'm running down into Copulani Park. I'm thinking to myself, "This, I've really changed who I am. I've changed my perception of me, because so I'm doing something I never thought I could do. I thought I could maybe fake my way through two days, but doing it in one day. And then the funny part, Greg, right, is I'm starting to think, oh my God, there's going to be big crowds at the finish. This is going to be like the coolest moment of my life. I can't believe it. There's going to be bands, cheerleaders. I come running into the park, and there's a light bulb above me, there's a chalk line on the ground, and I hear this voice in the darkness, hey you, yeah, you in the race? Yeah, you're done. That was it. There was one guy doing one-hour pushups, there was no Mike ride. there was no celebration of what you're doing, but deep in my gut, I knew this sport was special and I knew I'd been changed, and it became my mission in life to share the, the, how important this sport is and how it changes you for the better. And that, that day was, was, uh, was totally cathartic because it led to me leaving teaching, starting to work for a magazine called Running and Triathlon News, then starting Competitor Magazine in 1987, growing Competitor to, to half a million circulation and 11 editions around the country, eventually becoming the Competitor Group, owning all the rock and roll marathons and growing that event. Rock and roll from 2008, when we became the competitor groups in 2012, grew from seven rock and roll marathons to 34. 650,000 participants, more importantly, 60% women. It changed the whole face of running, which used to be 80% guys, 20% women. All of a sudden, with this, hey, we're listening to music. We got bands every mile. We're raising money for team and training. It changed everything from a business perspective, but it was that wasn't the intent. The intent was... This sport makes me feel better about myself. Other people would enjoy this feeling as
0: well. That's I love those stories, Bob. Um, and I would appreciate getting in a little bit deeper around that self perception. Um, what what changed? Like what? How did you see yourself pre race, post race? Yeah.
1: yeah, I saw myself pre race as a kid. I was never a good athlete, but what I was good at was. I would go to your house, you know, on our block. I go to your house and say, "Hey, Greg, we're gonna play baseball in the street." Well, your first question is, "Who else is playing?" Well, you're the first house I went to. There's, I have nobody, but you're not gonna come if you're the first guy. So, oh, I've got Norm, I've got Donnie, I got Jim. We're all coming. Well, then, then you're like, "Okay, I'm in." Well, so now I go to Norm's house and say, "Well, Greg's in." Okay, I'm in. So, learning that people want to be part of something that other people are already doing became a huge part of who I was. And I realized after finishing the, that Ironman thing, that that's something that carried over, not just to getting people to come out and play, but if I'm selling advertising in a magazine and I got Nike on the back cover, well, then Adidas and the other guys are sitting up and taking notice. Mm-hmm. If we get a company called Metrix, which we were the really the first place that Metrics was advertising uh, in when it came to endurance sports, well, Metrics led to, Champion Nutrition and like all these other get eventually Gatorade, you need you need a even if it's a, a loss leader, you need somebody to give credibility that okay if there's one bike company in there, then other bike companies want to come along. And I, I realized that 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 skill I had of getting people to come out and play that transferred over to business. And it, it and to this day, when we started Challenge Athletes Foundation, same type of thing. I wanted to change perception of if you think about a a kid like Rudy Garcia Tolson, who's a double above knee amputee right back in the day, you didn't let that your kid outside. You, you sort of hit him because you were embarrassed. you didn't want to show your child well, when we started c a f the the history of charity at that point, and this is probably before your time, but it was late night television, Sally Struthers doing these commercials with violin music and all the. Please help these poor, sympathetic creatures. They're, they're, they're awful. They're, 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 they have, they're struggling in life. You need to help them. Well, that was not the attitude we brought to competitor. And it wasn't the attitude we brought to CAF. It became, we took low angle, hero shots, Rudy, hands on his hips. You could see the tinker toy looking prosthetic legs that he's dealing with. And the look on his face was, what are you looking at? You give me a piece of equipment, I'll kick your ass. Right, I'm no different than you are. I have the same goals. I have the same ambitions. All I need is a little help. You give me a little help, I will come out there and change the world. And I think in our now it's 30 years we've been doing CAF. I think we've changed the world in that perspective because you see our kids comfortable in their own skin, happy to be. Hey, I'm missing a leg, but so what? I can do whatever I want to do in life.
0: It's amazingly powerful, and and it's one of the reasons I got attracted to CAF. I don't know, probably 15 years ago when I was doing the Escape from Alcatraz Triathlon. Um, My older brother's mentally handicapped, and he has been since birth. And similarly to your story, in our childhood, we would kind of be homebodies. Like, we wouldn't want to be out because you did get those strange looks. Um, But I got to tell you, the energy and the positivity that he brings into my life every day Yes, allows me to wake up in the morning and say, you know what? I can take on these big races. I can take on a broken business. I can take on this family, and and it's CAF. It's Rudy. It's those stories that really are impactful. And so, like that's how I got attracted uh, to initially to CAF. It's a very very powerful organization. Before we jump into real details around the Challenge Athletes Foundation, Bob, I'd love to explore other sort of business learnings that you mm-hmm. have from running your own businesses, for sure. sure. And then two, from, the, from competing in these Ironman triathlons.
1: And what I learned, is funny, because when we started Competitor Magazine, my partner, Lois Schwartz, she was the art teacher at the little school that I worked at. I was a PE teacher. And when we ended up starting Competitor, we, and we had no clue what we were doing. We, we had been working for a magazine called Running a on News that went out of business. So when it went out of business, I went and met with, uh, Those two cycling magazines in the state of California. One was called California Bicyclist and Southwest Cycling. So the, I went to meet with the publishers of both magazines and said, Hey, if we created a magazine that showcased not just cycling, but, but triathlon and running, we could have something very special, very unique. And both publishers told me the same thing. We'll never put a skinny runner on the cover of a magazine. And this sport of triathlons a fad. It'll be gone in five years. This is 1987 right? Our magazine, running a travel news, went out of business in April of 87. And so during April, I'm like going around and meeting with these folks and they're basically saying we have no interest. And then we came back to San Diego and some friends came to us and gave us a check for $17,000 and said, go start your own magazine. So we got 200 square feet of call it office underneath Uh, 10,000 pounds of bike racks in a guy's garage. We paid $200 a month. We didn't pay ourselves for the first three years. We were basically, I was living on friends' floors. But we believed in the whole concept of competitor. And we were driving up to LA every weekend. And we, to be honest, we didn't have business experience. Neither of us had business experience. What we had was teaching experience. And as a teacher, you are dealing with kids. You're dealing with parents. You're dealing with administrators. You have to be Switzerland in a lot of different situations and you have to be kind. And you have to uh, this this thing that people say nowadays, they say, oh, it's just business when they try to, you know, when they try to win at business. My feeling has always been that it only works if everybody wins. When we had a client who, for whatever reason, couldn't pay their bill, it was, hey, you know, what can we do about this? And invariably it was like, Hey, let me give you some product. Uh, you know, I, I can't afford to pay the bill. Can I give you some product? And that worked out great. Okay, we got some product. We'll start going to expos. We'll sell the product that they're giving us. But you, you don't never want to look at it that this person was a bad person you know, or they just had a bad situation. And I found that I still believe that 99.9% of the people we deal with are really, really good people who just want to do the right thing all the time. And that's what we brought to our business with competitors. So we, we started, we started competitor after the first year. Like we didn't really have a lot of money to thank our sponsors or supporters for, adver- for advertising with us. So I was walking by this construction yard and saw these bricks and grabbed these bricks and put a little plate on the brick that said, every business has a foundation. Thanks so much for being ours. And I would go up and visit Brian Maxwell at Power Bar and Ed Brick would be on his desk or Gary Erickson from Cliff Bar. A lot of our early advertisers, Nike, Nike supported us from the very beginning. I, I, when I called uh, Wyden Kennedy, the, the woman we were dealing with, Wyden Kennedy, at running a triathlon news and said, listen, I can't even show you an edition of competitor because we haven't come out yet. And they basically uh, bought the first three years of the back cover. Un, without knowing what we were building, right? And they, were, I would always be supportive because of them supporting us from the very beginning. You always need people to believe in you. And you know, and I've always felt anytime we had a discrepancy, someone said, hey, um, I think the bill is wrong. We owe You say we owe you this. You say we owe you that. I was like, oh, let's compromise. Let's figure it out. Never, never made sense to be angry at anybody. And, and I, I learned that over time that you... You always want to do the right thing. Um, one time, there was a woman named Pat Hambrick who was the I think she was vice president of Saucony. And at the time, you know, we at, at when Iron when Ironman came around, we would get competitor we would get a table in the VIP area. So I invited Pat to come sit with us at our table. And the president of Ironman was like, "Well, we're sponsored by Reebok. We can't have that person from Saucony sitting at your table." And I was like, I had to tell Pat that she couldn't sit there because Iron Man didn't want her to sit there. Wasn't that long after that she became president of Reebok. And the first thing she did was cut the relationship with Iron Man. So you never know how many people have you worked with over time who were they were an entry level person at an agency. Next thing you know, they're decision maker. So it's you know, And you should, you should just treat people the way you want to be treated right from the beginning. You shouldn't be thinking, well, what happens if they get in a position of power? But that's the end game is if you're nice to people, if you're kind, if you do the right thing, good things happen. And so one of the stories I like to tell that really, really uh, validates that, we had a young man from CAF. His name is Emmanuel Afosu Yeboah. Kid was born in Ghana and his uh, right leg was deformed. And in his country, if you have a deformed leg, if you you have any child with a disability, you're considered cursed, your family's considered cursed. Mm. So we received this grant request from this young man from Ghana. He was, when he was born, his dad deserted the family because he had a disability. Mom was told to abandon him in the jungle. She refused to do that. She would carry him back and forth to school every day. He was the only disabled kid in school. So when he turned 13, mom became ill, and he decided to start to leave school and shine shoes for a couple of dollars a day to support the family. When he turned 18, mom passed away. He decided he wanted to do something to, to honor her life. He decided he wanted to ride a bike across Ghana to show that someone with a disability could do anything. Problem is, he didn't own a bike. So through a missionary, he finds CAF. Uh, and they sent us a typewritten grant request, right? And we get this grant request, asking for a bicycle, and his birth date is my birthday, May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. And we figure we'll never hear from this kid again. We'll send him a bike. Send him a bike. He rides 600 kilometers across Ghana with one leg on a mountain. And everybody's running after him like he's Forrest Gump. So we decide that we're going to bring him to San Diego to come to our event that we started for Jim McLaren, who was the reason that we started CAF to begin with. He was an amputee who ran a 316 marathon after losing his leg with a walking leg. Then went over to Kona, went 1042 at Kona and was changing the world. I was covering him through competitor magazine. Eight years later, he gets hit again. He's on his bike during a race. A van goes through a closed intersection, propels him headfirst into a pole, becomes a quadriplegic. And that's when we got together to do something for Jimmy. I'd covered a lot of wheelchair athletes. The one thing I'd hear from them when I'd ask, what's the worst part of your new life? It was invariably, I'm 30 years old. Here come mom and dad back in my life. No sense of self, no sense of independence. So our goal back then was, we're gonna raise $25,000. We're gonna buy Jimmy a van with hand controls to give him independence. That was it. We raised 49, thought our job was done. And then three amputee women came up to us. We did this little triathlon at La Jolla Cove to raise 49,000. And they did a relay team to support Jimmy. And they go, hey, it's great we did it for Jimmy, but did you know when you're with when you get injured, your health insurance will cover a walking around leg or an everyday wheelchair? Nothing to do with sport is covered by insurance no. because they consider it a luxury item. So that's why that's when we got our 5013 C and decided if someone needed a piece of equipment, training, or travel, to stay in a game of life through sport. The CF would always be there. And this is our 30th anniversary. We've now raised $159 million. Sent out over 44,000 grants to athletes in 73 countries, 105 different sports, all 50 states. And so we get, in in the early 2000s, we get this grant request for a bicycle from this kid from Ghana. And I'm like, it was Ghana near Cleveland? Where the hell is Ghana? I have no idea where the hell this place is. So we send a bike. He rides 600 kilometers on one leg on a mountain bike. We said, bring him in for the event we started from McLaren. Bring him in. He's never been on a Ghana, never been on a plane. has $3 in his pocket when he shows up. That was a 56 mile bike ride with one leg on a mountain bike. And, uh, I, I know, like Emmanuel, how was the bike ride? He goes, Bob, I did not know San Diego was so hilly. Yeah. I was like, we, you're going up La Jolla shores. It was brutal. One leg takes him seven hours. Right. So we reach out to Loma Linda hospital. And this is like, I was saying, you can have a business plan, all the business plans you want, but sometimes you just got to go from your gut. So this kid, uh, we sit down with Loma Linda and say, is this kid a candidate for prosthetic? And they say he is. So we do a deal. We'll take care of the cost of transportation back from Ghana and the cost of the leg. They'll take care of the homestay and the operation. So meanwhile, while we're planning on him coming over and having this operation, I started thinking, if we don't capture this on video, if we don't tell this story, it's a huge miss. So I reached out through Ironman. Lisa Lax produced all the Ironman TV shows and won 13 Emmys for her work on the Olympics and on Ironman. Her twin sister, Nancy, created or did all the TV for Tour de France. The two of them had just left television to start a documentary film company. So I call them up, say, listen, I don't know if this is a documentary, but how cool would it would be to capture this kid with his, what his leg looks like now, be there for the operation, and be there when he does our bike ride next year with two legs rather than one. That's a hell of a story. Yeah, yeah I don't know if that's, a, again... Just like me going to somebody's house and trying to get somebody to come out and play is like, I think this is a great story. What do you guys think? I mean, we, we like it. When's he coming? Like five months, six months? I don't know, five days. I'm like, oh, crap. They put a crew on a plane, their own expense. Ghana, started shooting him. Lisa's calling going, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. They come for the operation at Loma Linda Hospital, has the, gets his prosthetic leg. Six weeks later, does a triathlon with Rudy helping him with the swim. He does a three-mile run, 10-mile bike ride, 150-yard swim in a pool with his brand-new leg. Flies home to Ghana? He's wearing jeans for the first time in his life because jeans would not go over the stump that he had coming out the back of his leg before. He's wearing a medal from this triathlon he had just done. It's a ticker tape parade through his hometown of Kofarudia in, in in Ghana. He's got a $15,000 prosthetic in a country with a per capita income of $400. So we bring him back to do our bike ride the following year with Lisa and Nancy and their crew following him. He does the bike ride in four hours rather than seven with two legs rather than one, receives our most inspirational athlete award from Robin Williams. Then we fly him up to Nike to receive what's called the Casey Martin Award that Nike does every year for people who are inspirational disabled. It comes with a $25,000 grant. We matched the grant. So now now Emmanuel's our ambassador to Ghana with $50,000. Then Lisa Nancy set up for Emmanuel to meet the Secretary General of the United Nations, Kofi Annan, to talk about the rights of the disabled in Ghana. And then they sent a rough cut of the film to Oprah, who agrees to narrate this film called Emmanuel's Gift. And then Lisa Nancy pitched ESPN to have Jim McLaren, who started the foundation for, and Emmanuel received the Arthur Ashe Courage Award at the ESPYs. So imagine this, that we're like 10, not even 10 years into our little charity and we're in the auditorium up in LA and it's LeBron James and Bill Walton all the biggest celebrities in the world and Matthew Perry is hosting the ESPYs. He introduces Oprah, who introduces a 13-minute feature on Jim and Emmanuel, narrated by Kiefer Sutherland, which is spectacular. And then... Uh, The whole audience erupts in a standing ovation as Oprah and Jim and Emmanuel are embracing on stage. And the following weekend, we're launching the film at the National Geographic Theater in D.C., and we get a call that President Bush had been watching the ESPY Awards and would like to meet Emmanuel. This kid was shining shoes a year and a half ago. Now Oprah is narrating a film on his life, and we're premiering it at the National Geographic Theater in D.C., and we're in the White House to meet the president of the United States. So we're in the waiting room when we and looking at the TV and there's these bombings in London happening that morning. So we're going, oh my God, the president's got way too much going on to be dealing with us. And next thing you know, they're escorting us into the Oval Office as Rumsfeld and Cheney are sprinting out of the Oval Office. We're standing in a little semicircle, President Bush, myself, my partner at Competitor Magazine and Emanuel. And President Bush is like, so Emanuel, you know, I always wondered. So when you ride, do you ride SPD pedals? Do you ride flat pedals? Do you ride cages? How do you ride your bike? Because I don't understand how a prosthetic leg works. So Manuel's wearing his Ghana garb. It's like a gown. He reaches down to take his leg off to show our president how it works. And when he takes his leg off, it makes an audible click, which the Secret <laughs> Service wasn't very happy about. And they start moving towards us. The next thing you see is the most powerful man in the world with this leg in his hand, right? And the next day, Day, the guy who set up the visit for us sends us a note and says, Hey guys, I want to let you know. President loved meeting Emmanuel. J- just want to let you know we keep a list of the first that happened in the Oval Office. First person take their leg off in the Oval Office Emmanuel Afosa Yaboa from Ghana. But the president of Ghana up until that point had done nothing to help Emmanuel with his idea of getting a disability act passed in Ghana. Well, the next day, there's a pre- picture of President Bush with Emmanuel on the cover of all the newspapers in Ghana. And when Emmanuel got back to Ghana, the president of Ghana met him at the airport and said, "Emmanuel, I'll get your disability act presented to parliament. And six months later, it was passed. Wow. Flash ahead of 2010, we're riding with President Bush, the Warrior 100 that he put to, puts out in Texas for the troops who've been injured in battle. And uh, he invited myself and my co-founder, CEF, and a number of our athletes there. And the first night, we're doing the meet and greet. And, and President Bush, I walk up President Bush. You probably don't remember me, President Bush, but we, we met a few years ago in the Oval Office. I was with this young man from Ghana. He goes, Emmanuel, I never did find out. Does he ride flat pedals? Does he ride cages? How does he ride his mountain bike? I said, President Bush, because of you, there is now a Disability Act passed in Ghana, and you should be very proud. And he was like, well, you can give that young man my best. But whenever people say, how can I make a difference in the world? I'm just one person. I tell him that Emmanuel story. It It's shining shoes a movie narrated by Oprah in the Oval Office. Now he's running for office in Ghana. His first little girl he named Linda after Loma Linda Hospital. His next little girl he named Comfort after his mother. He travels the world as a speaker. It's uh, it's very cool when you see stories like that. And, and those stories aren't alone.
0: Bob, it's amazing. You got my skin tingling uh, hearing that story and, and the impact that CAF is having across our community. My curiosity question, right? When you got that letter, that that manually typed letter, did you have any th- thought that it would turn into this story yeah, but- or in, into all this impact? And so, like, let's. What's the lesson, like, from a business perspective? What's the lesson learned from that for our audience? Let's, I let's think. Really let's drill it down.
1: And one of the things that's funny, I was talking to Graham Frazier, who ran Ironman North America, and. And we compared notes. when we ran our companies, we started every meeting with how do we make our events better? How do we make the experience better for, the, for me, for my reader, for Graham, for his participant? How do we have a coffee key at a coffee cart? How do we do contests? It was never how do we impact our EBITDA? How do we, how do we make more money? We always felt if you do what's right, if you do what's in your heart and in your gut, the money will come. And I've always been a firm believer in that, that a lot of times when, you're, when you start thinking, oh my God, back in the day, walking had become very popular, mall walking. And so we're like, oh my God, should we get into the walking market with competitors? Should we start getting into walking? I'm like, do, we, do any of us give a crap about going mall walking? No, that's not our market. Stay, even though there's dollars dangling there, that probably the running brands might want to get into that. It's not who we are, what we do. Stay true to who you are. Stay true mm-hmm. to what your what your gut tells you to do. And the great and great stuff will happen. It with CAF, like I said, with, with Rudy, just setting up that whole thing that our athletes are powerful. Our athletes change lives. Interviewing our kids who, you know, rather than covering up their legs, like a lot of people of my generation would do if you were an amputee, they're wearing shorts. They want people to see what they're dealing with. And I and one of our athletes telling me, the, my leg makes me different in a good way. And I'm like, you know what? That's awesome. And not, every one of those kids, if you're in a wheelchair or like your brother or uh, amputee, every time you leave the house, the spotlight is on you. You don't blend, right? You don't blend. Everybody's going to notice you. You either embrace it or you shrink from it. And I find that our kids embrace it. They get to understand I am different in a, in a cool way. I am different than everybody here which is great. If if you look at every commercial that airs now, and I smile every time I see them, how many commercials do you see where diversity is a big part of it? You see a person in a wheelchair, you see somebody who's an amputee, you see a visually impaired person with their dog. And it, it's, it just, it makes you feel proud that I think we've had a big impact on that over the years.
0: Ab- absolutely. Um, and just thinking about Paul, my brother, I, you know, we're out at a restaurant or walking in a room, he lights up the room, he's got no hesitation to walking up to somebody and saying, hi, my name is Paul McDonough. How are you today? Exactly. For me, I walk in a room and it's like, all right, who's, like?" you're kind of spooked a little bit. It's very interesting.
1: Well, and, but that's changed, right? Like you said, when you guys were younger, it's like, oh, do we really want to go out? Cause you know, it's, it's, it, when you go out in public, it becomes a thing. You become mm-hmm. the thing. Everybody's going to come to your table or you're going to see people sort of looking and then looking away. That's, that's impending. You start thinking, I don't want to put my brother through that. I don't want Paul to be feeling that people are, are thinking less of him. Well, the deal is the more exposure your kids, the kids have. One of the interesting things we just did, we were one of our guys, Andre Kailich, uh, lost both legs when he was actually in, he was in Prague. He was going to school and he was out drinking with his buddies. Next thing you know, he's, he fell into the tracks. Uh, after the night of partying and lost both legs. Ended up just, he became the first hand cycle guy to finish the ramp, right? Race across America, 171,000 feet of climbing. His move, movie is called No Legs, All Heart. It's beautiful. Well, we just did in DC, we went to see the premiere of the film and we were doing a grant to a little girl named Paisley, little African-American girl who's five years old, Born like Rudy, missing both legs above the knee, and um, we surprised her with a grant on stage during the post post premiere Q and A with the director and producer and star of the movie. And I was interviewing um, Paisley's mom, Paige, about Paisley. I said, "You know, I, I know that Paisley is is in all these different sports. She's five years old. She's in gymnastics. She's in swimming. She's in a hand cycle." You've got her thinking about wheelchair basketball. you got all these different sports. Why is it so important to you that your daughter be exposed to these sports? She goes, well, it's important that my daughter know that there's great sports out there. She goes, but more importantly, it's it's really essential for those other little kids who are three, four, or five years old to be exposed to someone like Paisley when they're that age so they know, oh, people are people. People are different. You know, Paisley's missing legs. This kid's in a wheelchair. Not have their first exposure when they're 15 years old. And I was like, that is so perceptive that you would be thinking not so much of Paisley, but of all the other kids and how important it was for them to know Paisley and the Paisleys just like they are. And she's as goofy goofy a kid as as everybody else.
0: You know, my kids look at the world differently because of my older brother and how they see people and interactions. And so that, that point is very well made, Bob. My question out of that, Around parenting, how have you seen parents or families embrace these challenges with their sons and daughters?
1: You know what's been fascinating to me, and it's it's the coolest thing ever is we we'll, when we re, we'll get over you know, four thousand grant requests each year, and you read through these grant requests, and sometimes you'll see, this child is missing uh, an arm and a leg, and he's from Ghana or he's from Southeast Asia, wherever. And you'll see who the parent is, and the parent might have three kids who are all dealing with challenges. These angels of <laughs> these parents who are amazing, they'll adopt one child and help them. Then they'll go, we want to do it again. And what I've seen is parents who want to help children from other parts. They, they've had their own children. Perfect example, Haven Shepherd um, was born in Vietnam. And Haven's birth parents were actually having an affair. They were both married to other people, which is very taboo in Vietnam. So they decided that they were going to kill themselves because of this and their daughter. So they held Little Haven and blew themselves up. And they, they died, but Little Haven lost both legs. And below the knee. And this family, uh, the Shepherds from Missouri, read the story. Next thing you see, a little video we created. They're on a, they're on a plane. They're on a bus. They're on a moped. And here comes Grandma out of one, this thatched hut handing Haven to Shelly Shepherd. And this little, little girl comes home. And the Shepherds have five or six blonde-haired, blue-eyed kids in Haven. And Haven fits right in. She's, uh, one of the daughters says, she's a shepherd girl. She comes in, you know, go get the pedicure, go get, you know, the whole thing. She's just like the other girls. And she's now went to her first Paralympic games in 2020 in swimming. And that to me is, is one of the coolest thing is these parents are not just looking, uh, I, I want to have the healthiest kid in the world. They're all looking how can we help? We've got healthy kids. How can we help that next kid and give him a great life? It's that's always so moving, especially it's not like these people are millionaires. They're they're reaching out and they're adopting a child and they're a lot of times stretched because it's, you know, it's expensive. You start talking about trying to get uh, equipment for for two or three or four challenged athletes. It's that's a lot of stuff. So parents nowadays are amazing. And the other thing I see, Greg, kids nowadays, the kids, college age kids, they care. They want to make a difference. They're not going, hey, I just want to work for, a, I want to uh, work for a Fortune 500 company and make millions of dollars. I want to create prosthetics. I want to, I'm, I've got a biomechanical engineering background. I want to help people. I want to help kids. How can I do that? I just had the Cal Berkeley Triathlon Club. Uh, they have 150 members and 75 were down here training in San Diego and Dean Harper, the coach brought them to CAF and I speak to them every year. And I had Rudy there passing his legs around and, you know, three or four of the kids are like, Hey, I'm going into prosthetics. This is, this is the coolest thing. They're, they're already planning that. They want to do something that makes a difference. I think we're in a really, really cool era when it comes to our college kids.
0: That's great to hear. Um, Bob, stepping back a, a slightly, you know, one of the themes from the stories that we're chatting through is around storytelling. You've talked about media, you've talked about video, you've talked about messaging. Um, any advice to our audience around how to get your story told or how to create a story? I mean, if a lot of these stories just lived within somebody's home and was never told, the inspiration wouldn't be there, the, the opportunity right. for others isn't there. Like, Talk to us about storytelling and, and the power of video.
1: You know, uh, storytelling has always been essential as far as I was concerned. It's like with Competitor Magazine, I learned something very early. It was When I was at Running and Triathlon News, the guy who ran Running and Triathlon News name was Mike Plant, who was this amazing photographer, writer. He he could do it all. And he told me early on, he said, Bob, if you're covering the Ironman, to, to be able to write an article that says, does a blow by blow of the race and this guy made a move here and this guy made a move there. Who cares? You've got to, you know, a few people care about that. Mm-hmm. It's in this great race that happened, here's the best story. What's the best story? And go deep in that story. Uh, you know, look at that story and here's the guy who, uh, Tom Gallagher, who was in, in, in eighth place and got hit by a cab two miles from the finish of the bike ride in Kona and is laying there with a crumpled bike and wondering... You're looking up at the police officer and saying, what should I do? And he goes, well, bro, you better run. And so he picks up his bike and runs the last two miles in the transition. Then goes, and runs the marathon and finishes like in 12th place. That's a cool story. Maybe that's a better story than the guy who won the race or what I found. This is when I first got into the type of storytelling that really moved me. I was, this is 1987, 88. When we first started a competitor and You'd go to the races and it would be, you know, your runners and you'd talk to him and says, so how'd the race go? Well, I made my mo- move at mile three. And that, that's, you know, you're trying to fill a thousand words with that. That's not a lot. And he's a 22-year-old guy who doesn't really have any life experience. Then there's a guy, Jim Knob, who was a uh, Olympic trials pole vaulter, who was hit by a car on his motorcycle going to practice one day and decided he was going race, race, to race wheelchairs. And early on, those things were four wheeled things. And I, 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 so something about him that fascinated me. He showed up in these Dalmatian skin suits, right? And he was, he was going, "Hey, I finished in front of runners. Why don't I get the money? What the hell?" He just was a guy with an attitude and a personality, and he had a great look to him. And I was at his house, and I'm interviewing him, and I'm sitting there, and I notice there's a nickel on the floor, and your first thought is the guy in a wheelchair dropped the nickel and he can't pick it up because he'll fall out of the chair. So I go down to pick up the nickel and it's glued to the floor. And I look up and there's Jim Knob drinking a beer, looking at me. And he goes, so Babbitt, you didn't think the guy in a wheelchair could pick up the nickel off the floor? This, lesson number one, don't ever underestimate anybody. Mm. I'm like, thank you, Jim. That was a great message. And that became, so long before CAF, we were covering, I, I had Jim Knob was on a cover of Competitor Magazine. And my crew, my team was like, you can't put a wheelchair guy on the cover of a of your magazine. Who's going to pick up the magazine wanting to read about some guy in a wheelchair? I said, a lot of people, because it's a great story. It'll resonate with them. And it did. And it turned out to be sort of thinking opposite what's going to be different. And we actually created a wheelchair criterium in downtown La Jolla uh, that was part of a, a bike race. They had this thing called the Hawaii Grand Prix bike race, and they had the woman's bike race and a men's bike race. I convinced the race director to let us put a wheelchair criterium in the middle of this. So it was a half mile loop. It was going to be a 5K for the wheelers, and nobody had ever seen wheelchair racing up close and personal. And what I wanted was we brought in a flatbed truck with a lift on it and brought in patients from Scripps and Sharp Hospital who were wheelchair-bound. So they're sitting on a corner there watching these guys coming around at 30 miles an hour, going up on two wheels around the corners, right? Jim Knob, Craig Blanchett, David Bailey, all these cool guys. And the cool part was when I interviewed folks up on the flatbed truck, I said, do you like this? And one of the guys who's a quadriplegic. uh, Dave Kernow goes, Bob, you know, what's cool about this. I don't know if I'll ever get to what they're doing, but it's important for me to know that it's there. It's Mm. important to know that it's possible. And you know what, that, that, meant, that meant a lot to me. So when we, when we, when Jimmy McLaren became uh, quadriplegic, that became part of the thing. It was, we need people to see success. They need to see our athletes, challenge athletes have a success. So they know if they can do it, I can do it.
0: You know, I was thinking about, um, when I'm preparing for a race, you, know, you spend a ton of time on the internet. You're looking for blogs. You're looking for information. You want to know about race conditions. And the ones that I avoid, to your point you made originally, are the ones that talk about the tactical parts of, you know, at mile eight, I did X and at mile 12, I did Y. Right. And what I want to know is, I want to see these success stories. I want to see like the triumph and the defeat that happened during race day at right. a certain specific race. And so I think that's part of our message to our audience, right? When you're telling your story, let's talk about the difficult times and the successes and less about how many miles you got in on your tread, on your bike the month before.
1: What's fascinating, if you look at my, obviously CF is a huge passion, but Ironman and triathlon is, is a big part of my life. And if you look at our history with triathlon in, you know, in 78, a guy named Gordon Haller won, he was a 227 marathoner. Um, he drove a taxi, cool guy, 79, uh, Tom Warren won. He was a bartender or owned a bar, 1980, Dave Scott won. I mean, the Ironman was then on ABC and it was great, but it was 1982. It was February 82. We had a woman named Julie Moss who is leading the race and she's got freckles and she's got red hair and she's 22 years old and people watching at home who couldn't relate to Dave Scott needing to cool down at the end of winning an Ironman. They're sitting in Pittsburgh and, you know, an Ironman always aired during winter time. So you get to watch Hawaii. Well, so now you're watching Hawaii in the February 82 race, and you're seeing this woman come apart at the seams, right? You're seeing her crap herself. You see her collapse. You see her get up and people watching at home are like, you know, stay down or walk. Don't try to run. What are you doing? and, There was something about that 22-year-old freckle-faced, red-haired gal. She could be your babysitter for your family. She could be your kid. You could relate to her, and you could relate to her struggle. So when you saw her collapse on the finish line, right, after getting passed, she gets passed by Kathleen McCartney. She collapses on the finish line, puts her arm across the line. They put a lay around her neck, put her on a stretcher, carry her off. And back then on ABC Wide World of Sports, they would do three segments for every show. So while Julie's on the stretcher, they go to ice dancing. And the f- phone lines at Wide World of Sports lit up because people were, Is she dead? What's going on? What's happening? They had to fly Julie and Kathleen to New York the following weekend to be on with the dean of ABC Wide World of Sports, Jim McKay, to assure the American public that this sport doesn't kill people. But because of that finish, because of that, the United States Triathlon Series, that was February of 82. United States Triathlon Series started in June of 82. They moved the Ironman from February to October. Because when it's in February, who could train for it? People mm-hmm. in, you know, in the West Coast, people in Hawaii, not people in, in Europe, right? So all of a sudden, they move it to October so people can train for it. The event goes from, you know we had 108 people in 80. By 83, the thing selling out, you know, with, with 1,500, 2,000 people. And it, it basically, the storytelling, that story of Julian and Kathleen, that's what made our sport. That was the most important moment in our history. Not Gordon Haller finishing the first Ironman, not uh, Tom Warren, not Dave Scott. Julian and Kathleen changed the face of the. And what's fascinating is Jim Lampley from ABC, he was a commentator when Julian and Kathleen... We're we're having when Julie was coming apart seems and I've interviewed Jim and he goes, Bob, they kept wanting me because this is taped, right? This is not going to air immediately. And they wanted him to do blow by blow. And he was like, no, play music. Let the drama play. Let people watch the struggle, bring them in. It was the original reality television. It was really the first moment of reality television where you saw somebody. Apart at the seams, and you and then the other side of it is people sitting back in Pittsburgh were where going, Okay, I'm watching this girl crawl, I'm watching her poop herself. What is it about that finish line that means so much that someone will crawl to get there, and how do I get some of that in my life? Right? Mm-hmm. That was it. That passion that I want to do something I, I could think about it. people were watching, they've they, they're in, they've done their, they started their business, they started working. They, their careers are going. They got their kids. Their life is going long. They need some. They need a little adrenaline. They need a, a some jump start there. And Ironman provided that. And Triathlon provided that. And it all kicked off with, with Julie and Kathleen. Last year, Jew, uh, February 6, 2022, 40 years from that date, I was interviewing Julie and Kathleen for Tri Club of San Diego that evening. Started the interview at 530. And Julie looks up at the clock at 6.05 and goes, this is when it happened. And you're wow. like, oh, crap. 29 seconds, closest finish to this day in Iron Man history. But it was like everybody in the room got goosebumps. It was like, oh, crap. This is exactly 40 years ago when, when wow. Julie crawled together. And, and to be honest, it took Julie a lot of years to come to grips with that because you, know, you kept thinking, I lost, I lost. And, and when the other aspect of that was ABC was producing the show. And Valerie Silk, who was the Iron Man race director, um, there was a group called Freewheeling Films that wanted to shoot that day. And they had their commentator was Bruce Dern. And Valerie gave them permission to shoot. ABC was not happy with that. So ABC uh, kept saying this other crews in the way. And as Julie was crawling, Valerie was in the production trailer with the producer screaming at her saying, we will never be back. The Iron Man is done. You violated your contract, Valerie. This is the last time this event will ever be aired. Meanwhile, that guy's boss is saying to him, "Uh, dude, you gotta come out here and see this. This is unbelievable. Not now, not now. Well, because of when they saw that footage, they moved up the production at least a month to get that thing on air because they knew they had lightning in a bottle. They had something Mm. so special. So Valerie leaves the, the trailer having no idea what just happened. She hears that, that Julie Moss would like to speak to her in medical. So she goes to Julie, and Julie's like, Valerie, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I, I gotta, I, I, can I come back next year? And Valerie's like, sure, you can come back next year, knowing there would not be an Iron Man. Iron Man was done because of ABC leaving. It would not happen again. That was it. Well, obviously it happened again. And it was because of Julia and Kathleen saving the Iron Man.
0: So that brings us full circle back to endurance mindset. So, Bob, I got to ask you this question. Yeah. Define endurance mindset to you. What's it mean to you? You know,
1: endurance mindset is, I I, I always look at it this way. You're in the Ironman 2.4 mile swim. The the regular mindset is, oh, crap, I've still got 2.2 miles to go. Oh, crap, I've still got two miles to go. The endurance mindset is, oh, I'm a quarter way to the turnaround. Oh, I'm halfway through a turnaround. Oh, I'm at the bow. Everything becomes a positive. And so when you're looking at your desk and there's papers everywhere and you're thinking, I've got budgets to do. I've got performance reviews. I had all this stuff. You could be thinking that way or you're like, I'm halfway through my performance reviews. I'm halfway through this. I think that mentality of how many times you get in the pool and you're like, oh, crap, I'm swimming 2,000 yards and it's it seems overwhelming, 3,000 yards. It's overwhelming. And- but if you break it into little bits and you do a little Pac-Man and you go, okay, one little bit at a time, I just did a hundred. All right. A hundred. That's great. I, I've done two of them now. I've done three of them. You take the positive of everything you do. And I think to me, that's the endurance mindset because it's easy to let numbers and all the weight of the world bring you down, or you can turn it around and go halfway there. Right? I, I think it's, it's part of it is the, uh, the glasses never half full it's always over overflowing right mm. the glass is overflowing we can do whatever the hell we want and so much of that comes from that that world of endurance that other people can't relate to but we can and they go oh my god i can't believe you ran a marathon well i did i ran 26 one mile repeats right and as soon as i got to five i was like oh big deal I, i'm under 20 miles now i got to seven i'm at we're always breaking that stuff down and i think that's, to me, is the endurance mindset.
0: It's interesting you put it that way because when people ask me about racing, I say it's very similar. Like, it's a series of 15-minute events, right? So I'm on the bike. I know I'm going to hydrate at 15 or I'm going to eat at 15. I'm going to hydrate at 15. I'm going to eat. And it just becomes this series of 15 minutes. And then on the run, it's, where's the It'll next- mile. Where's the next mile? Where's the next aid station? Where's the next person that gets to smile at me? Um, you know, it's it's that- I get to mindset, not I have to mindset. Yep. One year we were um, doing
1: Ironman and three of us were not having the best day out on the queen uh, K on the run. And we just decided that we were going to do, create our own Polish marathon. And we we're going to run a, run a pole, walk a pole, run a pole, walk a pole. And you ran a pole and you're like, all right, we just, we ran to a pole. All right, let's walk to the next one. And then it, was, then it got, we started feeling good. It's like, let's see if we can run two. You, you just make lemonade all the time and you make it fun. Anytime you make it, it's, I always look at race. I tell people before every race, this isn't a race. It's a catered workout. You're not competing <laughs> with anybody here. You're competing with yourself in the course, right? That's what makes our sport so cool. It is, it is an equal opportunity abuser. It doesn't care if you're big or small or if you're in a wheelchair or you're missing a leg. Get from point A to point B. You're a triathlete. You're a marathoner. You're whatever the hell you want to be.
0: Fantastic, Bob. We could go on and on forever uh, with these stories. How can an a, an audience member get in touch with you?
1: What's social I mean, media? Should, just, yeah, uh, just reach out to me. uh, You know, Babbitt Bob at gmail.com. B a b b i t t Bob at Gmail com. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, pretty much everywhere. the The show is on YouTube. This last year we did for Breakfast with Bob, we did 302 interviews and. Had over 14 million minutes of viewing from all over the world. It was it was really really fun. It's been fun going from when we had the magazine. Uh, at first, it was a newspaper. Then it was a magazine. Then in 1990, I went to a local radio station and it said, "Listen, I, I want to give me the worst time slot you have." It was like Sunday night, eight to ten o'clock. Cool, I'll take it. And because I wanted people to hear an interview on a sports radio station with Magic Johnson, Wayne Gretzky, and then Dave Scott, Mark Allen, Paul Newby-Fraser. I wanted people to understand that our athletes were elite athletes as well. That was important. And I remember, you know, this was, you had to be living in Southern California to hear my show. It was 8 to 10 every Sunday night on the Mighty 1090. Well, one day I was riding my bike at a place called Fiesta Island. It's a four-mile loop. It's where Ironman, where the triathlon first started. First triathlon was there in, in September of, of 1974. So as I'm running, riding around, this one woman's running and she keeps pointing at her head and I couldn't figure out what the heck's going on. So I stopped and said, what are you doing? She goes, I'm listening to your show. I'm like, how, is, how are you listening to my show? So I taped it on my cassette player and I'm playing it on my cassette player and the light bulb went off and I was like, wait, so people could listen to my show whenever they want, wherever they are? That, wow. So that's when we started, you know, putting it out there and getting on, uh, you know, Apple apple play just everywhere everywhere you Mm. could we put out competitor radio then babbittville radio and then breakfast with bob so it's been you know going from newspaper to magazine to radio to podcast to youtube has been has been really fun
0: wonderful and and we'll include those links in our show notes so many audience members care to click through and, and keep following you um that'll be an easy easy thing for us to do Bob, it's been awesome having you on the show. Your insights, your storytelling, the impact that you've had and your team has had with the Challenge Athletes Foundation is incredible. Um, I hope that audience members that have listened to our show are taking some good value uh, from this conversation. And if if you are taking value out of our conversation, please share it with your friends. Uh, This podcast needs to grow. Our messaging needs to grow and these stories need to be told. Uh, Bob, again, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Anytime, Greg. Thanks so much and best of luck with the podcast.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Chief Endurance Officer Podcast. To hear more inspiring stories and strategies around the endurance mindset, be sure to subscribe below or visit us at chiefenduranceofficer.com. Until next time, keep pushing those limits.